This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. Next month, Russians will vote in a referendum that will, amongst other things, zero Putin's presidential term count and allow him to stay on for another two terms until 2036, if he so chooses. What will happen? He doesn't have to hold the referendum. Some say he's doing it to legitimize his extension of power. Some say he's doing it as a ruse to prevent himself from becoming a lame duck president. I talked to Ben Noble, who's a lecturer in Russian politics at University College London, and also to Mark Galliotti, who's a well-known commentator and also is an honorary professor at UCL. So, Mark, Ben, uh, very nice um, to have you here. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining. Um, as we all know, that uh, Putin has sort of rushed through this um, changes to the Constitution, which in theory allows him to... to ignore the presidential term limits and stand for another two terms and remain president until 2034. Um, For me, the the, the key question, I mean, it it seems that the observers are divided into two camps. There's those that think that, yes, he is going to stay on forever. uh, And those that think this is just a, a mechanism to prevent him from becoming a lame duck, because if he were to stand down, in 2024, then there would be a huge succession fight in the lead up to that as the various elites, the fractions, maneuver to place their preferred candidate. And Putin himself, that would undermine his power and he'd become a bit of a lame duck. And so in order to avoid that, he's just created the uncertainty of what's gonna happen after 2024. And that that is enough to make sure that he's the, the key guy. So I don't know, Mark. <clears throat> what, what do you think? I mean, we've seen. I've seen you talk about this before. I mean, which which camp do you belong to, or, or is it something completely different? Well, I think it's something completely different, of course. <laughs> no, I mean, look. Let's be perfectly honest. In 1996, who was sitting there thinking, "Ah, oh, yeah, Putin, he's going to be president." I think there is a danger in trying to project too far out, particularly when Putin is not the kind of guy who, in my opinion, kind of creates this detailed long-term strategy and feels the need to stick to it rigidly. I think this is a classic bit of Putin giving himself options. Mm. Absolutely, he has to consider the 2024 issue. And precisely, there is a danger that if he didn't give some kind of steer, then it was hangover. I mean, it, it, it was really very clear before he, he announced these changes, the extent to which it was already beginning to consume the attention of the elite. This does absolutely, to a degree, tamp down the speculation. It gives him the option if come the time he hasn't found a suitable successor or isn't just terminally bored of doing direct line or whatever, he can either sort of move diagonally to security, uh, sorry, the state council, or, you know, if need be, he can stay on. He has options. And he's always, I mean, we've always said that he's more of a tactician than a strategist. And that um, here again, he he, he likes, well, he he makes it up as he goes along, doesn't he? He doesn't really have a long-term plan. Don't we all? I mean, again, I think, but the point is, generally speaking, I, there's always this danger when, when we, and it's something to do with the way we have a tendency to think of and slightly orientalize Russia, is we always look for these phenomenally complex Machiavellian schemes. And obviously, yes, there is all kinds of subterfuge and conspiracy and planning, much of which, though, is often about being 
retrospectively strategic in that, you know, the, 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 the four random spur of the moment decisions you made, you or someone else then turns them into uh, a grand strategy that you had in mind from the beginning. I mean, no politician can really plan out what's going to be happening four years hence. Ben, it's interesting that, sorry, it's interesting the point uh, you make, Mark, about um, the mode of thinking and discussion that we get into when we talk about Russia. You use the word orientalize. I have a slightly different take on it, even though certainly some people are taken to orientalizing um, uh, their thinking about Russia. There's also the response that lots of the way we talk about um, uh, contemporary domestic Russian politics is informed by the little information that we in fact get from the Kremlin. And so it means that we are forced almost to try and think about alternative explanations for what we might see. And that's why I think we had lots of people talking about the 2024 problem, uh, what Putin was going to do as part of this uh, constitutional reform moment, uh, which is why it's really interesting what happened yesterday, that it's become public that Putin has explicitly acknowledged that the zeroing amendment is one way to stop the elite fixating on the 2024 problem. And in his words, to get on what with this on, on with what they're supposed to be doing, which is uh, governing the country. So I think that's a really important moment that we have to acknowledge right from the get-go, that for the first time, I think, Putin has spoken about this head-on, uh, saying that zeroing is a way um, to calm down the elite. Well, of course, then the question is, uh, what happens when we get closer to 2024? Is he just going to kick the can further down the road and down the road and delay the inevitable? At some point, they're going to have to face this head-on. Because he said also I just pick up on that, actually, just quickly. I mean, sure. I agree entirely with what you said, Ben, but I think the interesting thing is you say, well, we have very little information. I mean, yeah. also, the thing is, actually, the Russian elite also yeah. has very little. And so, yeah. in many ways, what we do is piggyback precisely on the fervid discussion that takes place within various kind of commentariat and elite circles. And again, in, in that respect, I think you're absolutely spot on that the sort of the importance of Putin for about the first time really signalling a purpose, even if it may or may not have been the original purpose behind the constitutional changes, but certainly it is today's purpose. That is actually, I think, a big deal. Isn't, I mean, he also said that um, we shouldn't waste time looking for a successor. Everybody needs to get on with the job in hand. But <laughs> doesn't this create a, a horrible problem because of the, you know, the vertical, uh, the, the vertical system that he's set up that, the yeah. next president is not going to be elected in, a, in an open race. It's going to be chosen. I mean, we already went through that with Medvedev, who was chosen and then sacked, and Putin came back. But isn't this like a huge problem? Because um, the succession problem has to be dealt with. I mean, is there any idea, any, any visible candidates, any way out of this? Or is just Putin going to spring it to, on us at the last minute, like he does regularly when he appoints prime ministers? I'm going to say I think responding to that question is in relatively similar territory to trying to work out whether Putin is currently planning to stay in power until 2036. Mm. We could guess until the cows come home. I think what we should be focusing on is what this tells us about the nature of the regime. Putin is essentially admitting that it's a personalised system of power and in order for it not to unravel uh, and become unstable, he has to remain in a certain position. So he's almost admitting that he's been cornered into this position. Um, uh, 
because he is the ruler of this deeply personalized system that hasn't been able to institutionalize properly. And we're probably going to get onto this, Ben, in a bit. But I think that also feeds into why Putin has pushed ahead for this nationwide vote on constitutional changes that, according to the 1993 Constitution, uh, do not require a nationwide vote. They don't relate to chapters one, two, and nine. Um, insofar as they relate to chapters three through eight, it only requires supermajorities in the State Duma, the Federation Council, and regional assemblies in order to put these changes into the Constitution. I think by pushing for a nationwide vote, Putin is underscoring the extent to which these formal political institutions cannot provide the authority that they're supposed to. It all comes down uh, to him. Well, this is, I mean, this is the next question. And, and you were just writing about this this week, the, the legitimization of Putin and the decision or to open up possibility or get rid of the term limits. But this mm. is the thing I think with Russian politics that people miss is that actually Putin needs a certain amount of legitimate votes in all mm. the elections in order to um, underscore, you know, to give himself the legitimacy as a leader. And that while they, they do regularly play with the, uh, the numbers in order to push it over ver um, various key constitutional thresholds like um, 50% or 66% before, um, in this case, he, he needs to have the, the backing of the majority of people in order to be able to get rid of this because it negates then the opposition's argument. I mean, if, he's been, if this has been accepted by the majority of people, which it looks like it's going to be, but I mean, to what extent is it then a hybrid system where he needs some legitimate voting, and at the other end, uh, and on the other hand, he, um, he he's free to monkey around with plus minus ten percent of the voting in order to get past key thresholds. I mean, to answer that one, I would say all regimes, all governments, all states are hybrid systems to some extent. Everything takes place within the triangle of coercion, legitimacy, and co-optation. You know, you, you obey because you think it's right. You obey because you fear the consequences, or you obey because it's actually in some way or another in, in your interests. The point is what we have seen, and in some ways, um, giving the devil his due, it is actually to Putin's credit that he's not looking to rule from a throne of bayonets. Um, that absolutely a certain degree of legitimacy is really important to his government, to his system. But I also think to him personally, um, and in that respect, you know, he, he, he is the thoroughly modern autocrat who wants his subjects to be happy because, just because it makes an autocrat's job that much easier. I mean, I think it's more about precisely the balance between those ingredients. You know, so he's not worried about the opposition's arguments because what opposition is that? Um, he's worried, you might say, about the extent to which he is forced to rely on either co-optation, i.e. buying people off, offering people, you know, whether it's a better quality of life or whatever, or coercion, which has its own, own risks. What do you think, Ben? I agree with Mark entirely that uh, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that when it comes to this vote, it's a combination of broad popular support for the package of changes. Uh, and of course, we should remember that it's a package and that most people will be most excited about the uh, socioeconomic changes. So things like the constitutional guarantee of access to quality state health care, they're not going to be turning out um, from the 25th of June to the 1st of July in order to vote for the zeroing amendment. Um, uh, so we, we've got to remember that it's a combination of that broad popular support 
but also things that we've seen over the last couple of days. So Reuters has just released an investigation, uh, results of an investigation showing that it seems to be that large companies um, are pressuring employees and monitoring employees to take uh, part in the vote. Um, and so it's always that hybrid, the mix of relying on people uh, taking part of their own volition, but also being prodded um, uh, if and when they need to. And of course, that prodding isn't always centrally directed. It could be that we have lower level officials who want to please uh, their higher ups by making sure that the turnout in their district is higher than everywhere else. So it, it, it taps in something that Mark's written a lot about, about this sort of entrepreneurial dynamic in the, the Putin political system. Everything isn't centrally directed, but people often um, are motivated to try and please people higher up. And that's why we see what can seem like a concerted, centrally planned um, uh, effort actually being the result of lots of different people trying to please um, uh, people higher up the chain. Um, but I think in, in this context, it's worth pointing to an article put out by Denis Falkov. So he's the deputy head of the Levada Center. And a really, really good overview of the polling data, which suggests that, you know, the, the outcome of the vote uh, is such that these changes are probably going to go through. And the Kremlin is relying on the fact that those people who are against the changes are much less likely to turn up to vote. Mm. Uh, and then that sort of feeds into the split that we've seen within the political opposition between those calling for a, a boycott uh, and those calling for a no vote. So we see in that sense um, uh, how the, the attitudinal data um, uh, suggests that people are going to approve the changes. And so we, we, we don't need to necessarily see these um, outright uh, uh, sort of uh, steps of fraud. Um, uh, but we should be in sort of uh, little doubt that, that this is probably going to go through. So what do you, um, and to put it into the, um, the, the, the coronavirus context, I mean, that's made the whole thing a lot more difficult. And Putin's actually had to make a sort of, for him, I think, painful compromise in so much as he's distanced himself from the, the pandemic and handed it down to the regional governors. But then that runs counter to his like strong man, Mr. You know, I can fix it uh, image, which, is, which has been the, the basis of his popularity up until now. How did that play out? I mean, uh, has he is he actually had to? Is the whole referendum going to end up being a referendum on his handling of, of the Corona crisis? I mean, I would say it's not going to become a referendum. Full stop. I mean, on on, on that, as Ben said, I mean, actually, people seem to have, a lot of people have basically made up their minds, and it's motivated by a whole variety of other things. Um, we have obviously seen. Putin's approval and perhaps more importantly, trust ratings go down, while ironically that of many regional leaders going up. I don't necessarily think it's a, a, a painful compromise. I mean, actually, I think in many ways this is, this is quite classic Putin. He doesn't really want to handle stuff which he think is going to be problematic. Um, he seems to have a sort of a terror of being associated with failure. Um, and therefore, he's, he's nowhere to be seen when, when, when things are really bad. He's not the kind of, sort of chief executive who rolls up his sleeves and turns up immediately to take personal responsibility at the disaster site, whatever it may be. I mean, this was actually uh, a demonstration of power that he could just dump the coronavirus problem onto the governors without commensurate resources or powers. And it's, well, we'll see. I mean, at the moment, it's not going well. But again, in a way, so what about his approval ratings at this stage? We'll have to see what happens in the longer term. 
Because the flip side is the coronavirus also becomes, not just for Putin, but for many governments, an alibi. All of these promises, just like presidential terms, get zeroed by the coronavirus. We were, we were on track. We were going to do so well. We were going to give you such a wonderful you know, infrastructure and so forth. Ah, but then the virus came along. So again, if we're thinking beyond just the immediate day-to-day politics, um, I think we shouldn't assume that coronavirus is going to have that necessarily dramatic an impact. Because, I mean, well, I would say, sorry, Dan. I was going to say they launched the, the 12 national projects in so much as, you know, from 2012, Putin put all the resources into modernizing the army. And, and from where I sit, that looks like he sacrificed Russia's prosperity in order to get that done. And now that he seems to feel that that process is sort of sufficiently uh, advanced, that he, he's come back to dealing with the, the people to try and make them happy again. And Mark, you said separately on a, when we were chatting about this, that the social contract that he had with the people, like, don't interfere with politics, but I'll make your life pleasant, has been broken. And now the national projects have been derailed by the coronavirus. But... As you say, I mean, isn't that actually a blessing for him? Because it means if he doesn't deliver on that, he's not going to get the blame. People are not going to hold him for it to account. Well, he may or may not. I mean, again, I just think this is one of these great narrative imponderables. I mean, he is going to be championing the narrative that that it was just, you know, an act of, if not God, um, certainly sort of epidemiological ill fate. Um, but when it comes down to it, are people going to say, oh, fair enough, poor, poor chap, he did his best? So let me jump in on what Mark just said about imponderables. I think we also have to remember um, at the moment, like in lots of countries, the level of uncertainty um, has shot through the roof. But it's interesting that you can see that explicitly in the Levada data. So I think Mark just mentioned that in contrast to Putin's falling approval rating, the aggregate figure for governors has gone up. Uh, but it's interesting looking at those figures Um, that there's been quite a sharp rise in the no response response, so so, uh, no answer. And I think that points to the fact that at the moment, um, uh, even when we talk about Russian politics, lots is uncertain. There are lots of questions that can't be answered. It's particularly true at the moment. Uh, And insofar as the Kremlin isn't in control of that uncertainty, it makes um, uh, things particularly uh, worrying for the presidential administration when there are so many votes coming up. So yes, they have the nationwide vote, but that's swiftly followed on the 13th of September by regional votes at various different levels, not to mention the state Duma election that's currently supposed to take place uh, next year, 2021, in September. So uh, that's important to underscore just quite how uh, uncertain the situation is. But also when we talk about the social contract, I think the Kremlin is really going to be looking at uh, what's currently happening in Belarus, where there's a very similar dynamic of the social contract being broken. Um, And uh, the people in the presidential administration, I'd be interested to hear what Mark says about this, but I imagine they'll be watching closely what Lukashenko does, um, what his response is to this general narrative of the social contract having been broken, um, and that might inform the steps that they think are necessary to take in the next six months to a year. 
Yeah, because if you look at Belarus, I mean, the, there the, the COVID crisis has has seriously undermined uh, Lukashenko's popularity. And the people I talked to in Minsk this last couple of days are saying, you know, that's undermined his popularity to the point where he's in real trouble. And on top of that, you've got the, the economic stagnation since 2008. So he's really on his back foot. But you could also say that Putin's suffering from the same problem, is that, you know, people are looking across the border um, at Western Europe and the Baltics and all these examples of countries really coming on. And uh, Putin is in a slow decline as far as his popularity is concerned. And I thought that's why he launched the national projects, that he realizes that the protests are not going to turn into a color revolution today, but the longer this goes on, the, the more dangerous it becomes. And I think Lukashenko's actually already reached that point because, again, I don't think there's going to be a Maidan in, uh, in Minsk, but nevertheless, you know, he's seeing the most determined opposition that he's ever seen. And Putin, as he plays the long game, is trying to head this off by, I don't know, putting more money into people's pockets, um, dealing with the healthcare system, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you guys have mentioned several times regional governors. I mean, to what extent um, is the power devolving from the center? Because the regional governors now are as popular as Putin. And isn't that founded in he was using them to deliver the 2017 presidential votes? And now that people are looking to their local governments, who actually, you know, in some regions like Kazan and Tatarstan, um, we've got reverse migration, people are leaving Moscow and going to the regions because although the wages are lower, the quality of life is higher. I mean, don't these things all tie together? Okay, I mean, I think there's, there's a degree of truth in that. I mean, I think the thing is that what we actually have is, is I would suggest, an interesting um, widening of the gap between regional governors and Moscow. And when I say Moscow, I'm not talking Sobyanin, I'm talking about the federal centre. Um, in that you have uh, regional governors that, that, that are elected, that have to sort of play that particular role. They are at once Moscow's uh, foreman in the regions, but they are also the region's industrial shop stewards trying to advocate for the regional interests, given the way that sort of the, the tax revenues flow um, within this system. And I think increasingly we're seeing that, for example, if you're a governor, that's probably going to be the end point of your career or the high point of your career. Um, the days when actually governors thought it was quite likely if they were successful to move to Moscow seem to be declining. Actually, there's not many ministers who've got uh, gubernatorial backgrounds. And those that are tend to be more in the sort of getting your hands dirty side of things, regional economics and so forth. Um, so that actually that matters. Um, there was a really interesting study a little while back in, in, in Riddle um, about what makes a successful regional governor. And it's clear that you have to have traction with Moscow, but you also actually have to have good, strong roots locally. You, you know, in a way, you need the local elites to think of you as one of them and to be willing to work with you rather than thinking of you as just one of these variagi, the arrangements. In other words, sort of some sort of Muscovite stooge who's parachuted in, knows nothing, cares nothing because he's moving on somewhere else soon. In which case, everyone just simply ignores you or lies to you or whatever. It's a sort of a, a grand Russian tradition. So, I mean, I think in some ways, the more the center fails, then in a way, the more that the regions be become necessary to pick up some of the slack, but in the process also position themselves as precisely regional interests. But, but again, I think we, we, we have to 
draw boundaries. I mean, when it comes down to it, this is still a highly centralized system, which not least has a capacity to reach in and topple any governor it wants at, at any time. So you're never going to get like a, an open rebellion. What you get is the kind of passive subversion that frankly we saw in, in, in Brezhnevism and before. Because we used to say that there's two Russias, there's Moscow and there's everywhere else. But increasingly, there's a graduation or a gradation um, going on in the regions. And, you know, about a third of them are actually doing very well. And some places like Sochi, uh, Krasnodar are starting to flourish. Um, and it, it seems that, you know, the, the, their local politics, uh, they can ignore the center. And I interviewed Dorkovich once and he said, look, really, we have no control over the regions. We have to get them on board with our ideas. You know, we can bludgeon them into doing things, but it doesn't you know, work very well. If we're going to do broad reforms, if we're going to make broad changes, you know, have to get the regional governors to agree to the ideas. And that actually is very difficult. Was he talking, though, about um, uh, his position as somebody within the Medvedev government, or was he talking about other centres of power and other uh, federal bodies? Because I think that, that that's really important, that we can often slip into the logic of talking about Moscow's control. And uh, again, as Mark said, when we talk about Moscow here, it's the federal centre. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we see possibly different dynamics uh, between different federal agencies and their degree of control um, of different regions. So it could be that the uh, uh, image that you get from a certain ministry is very, very different to what the FSB would think. Um, uh, But I'd be interested to hear what Mark says about that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is it. There there are obviously the power ministries, but also quite a lot of others. It looks like Ministry of Education, um, high levels of centralization. But the point is that, in a way, they, these are all agencies which have relatively narrow responsibilities. Mm. Um, and again, part of being a successful governor is, is, is your capacity to, to have a team who, with your support, can champion local interests within all these structures, as well as the kind of the headline, praise us and send us um, federal revenues. Mm. You also need to actually have within your own, you know, your, your education ministry, your chiefs of police and so forth, and, and indeed if need be your FSB, um, people who feel local enough. And again, I mean, and this is, but this is ultimately why, why Moscow still retains power is because particularly in, in the more sharp-toothed elements, National Guard, FSB, to a lesser extent, the Interior Ministry, there's going to be a lot of people who do still have aspirations to getting to Moscow. That's where the real money is to be made. That's where the prestige is. That's where you'll get more brass for your chest is if you can jump out of the regional departments and into the central ones. So you have an interest in being a good, if I'm going to put it in the most emotive firm terms, Moscow quizzling. Go on, Ben, please. Yeah, I was just going to say it's interesting that when uh, Peskov was asked uh, by a journalist, this is a while ago now, but uh, when they were asked, when Peskov was asked, will the formal authorities that have been temporarily transferred to the regions during the coronavirus pandemic, will they be kept after the pandemic situation? Peskov was very clear uh, and quick in his response to say, no, they will be returned to the centre. My reading of that at the time was that 
that there was a, a growing awareness that the governors were um, becoming more, again, in aggregate, we don't have data from Levada Center on gubernatorial approval racing for each uh, of the 85 heads of the regions, if we include uh, Crimea and Sebastopol. Uh, but uh, it, it's interesting that, that, that I thought that Peskov's response was very much grounded in this appreciation in the Kremlin, that they wanted to uh, keep in control any idea that the governors would become the future stars, because if they get too big for their boots, then that undermines the sort of centralizing logic, which is that, yes, regions might be able to get away with certain things some of the time in particular areas. But when it comes down to it, um, their ability to do that is based on uh, a sincere fealty towards Moscow, that when it comes down to it, they will support the Kremlin. Um, and so it would be interesting to see in practice whether um, once the uh, pandemic becomes less of an existential issue, to what extent these uh, powers um, uh, are in fact transferred back to Moscow, or whether the regions uh, carry on with a degree of autonomy that they just didn't have before coronavirus came on the scene. Guys, we're um, about run out of time. Can I just ask you a very last question very um, shortly? that given we are assuming that Putin doesn't actually know what's going to happen in 2024 and that he's keeping his options open, what would have to happen for him to want to stay on, for him to uh, serve another two terms? What scenario would, would put him in a position where he would do that? Ben, do you want to have first crack at that? Well, my response is probably going to be very underwhelming. I can see Putin uh, uh, almost being forced into a situation where he um, has to say, or he feels he has to say, I need to stay on um, uh, in order for the system to remain stable. So it might not be that he actively wants to remain in power until 2036, but very much according to the logic that he voiced that became public yesterday, that he wants to do it so that people um, spend less time looking for a successor. He just stays on and stays on and stays on. So in uh, the broad scheme of things, he might remain in power until 2036, but that's just the accumulation of lots of individual tactical responses saying, oh, but but I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to make sure that the system doesn't crumble by staying in place. And he says that year on year on year on year. Yeah, I'd broadly agree. I mean, I think that I'm of the school of thought that says that he's actually tired and disenchanted with the job, but not so tired and disenchanted that he's going to risk systemic and above stability and above all his own security. So I think he needs to find a successor that he feels he can trust, who is competent and loyal enough and yet will not overshadow him. He needs to find some kind of constitutional niche which provides him with security, respect, and the capacity to backseat drive if he really feels the need to. And he has to feel comfortable in actually letting go. And in many ways, I think it's that last one that is going to be most difficult. It's all very well intellectually thinking, actually, it's, 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 it's time for me to move on. And frankly, it is time for him to move on. Not anything to do with Putin. I don't think anyone should be in power for more than 20 years. You need new ideas. But whether he, in that final analysis, will be able to say, this country can now survive without me, that I don't know. I agree. I, I have a very strong impression that he thinks that he doesn't trust anybody else to do the job. And uh, given Russia's history, you know, it's, uh, it's chosen some very bad leaders in its past. Guys, I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time. That was extremely interesting. Thanks, Ben. Pleasure. Pleasure.